Hi, everybody, and welcome to Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. My guest today is the one, the only, my friend and colleague, Adam Sloan. Adam's a veteran in media and entertainment production at the leading edge of the digitization of script-to-screen production processes for the past 20 years. Over Adam's career, he has held progressive leadership roles at Warner Bros. Entertainment and WB Pictures, where Adam delivered and was instrumental in the broad adoption of numerous pioneering production technology solutions, many of which have become industry standards. Adam holds an MBA from the Wharton School, Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from MIT, and an Engineering Master's from Florida Atlantic University. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Hey, everybody, and happy Friday. Welcome to Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. Got a very special guest today, my friend and colleague, Adam Sloan, who is currently CEO of Dark Fiber Production Technology. Good morning, Adam. How are you? Good morning. How you doing, Tom? Long good, time. good. Thanks for asking. Hopefully, uh, your pandemic is going as well as can be uh, under the circumstances. Been spending a lot of time at home. It's actually been going great. I mean, I'm sort of I'm sort of taking advantage of it now, right? Because I think at the beginning we were all sort of thinking about all the things we couldn't do, all the things that we lacked. Yeah. And and I think I've kind of learned much more recently, uh, you know, ab- ab- about sort of all the advantages, right? That you can kind of. Um, lean into, right? And being able to sort of uh, be in the middle of work, but run and take your trash out to the street because you hear the trash trucks come or, uh, you know, actually be at home when someone comes to fix your refrigerator or in the middle of the day, go on a bike ride, right? Because you can. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know. Freedom from dark socks. That's the theme. Right? <laughs> Freedom from dark socks. One of the things uh, I'm actually like a pretty decent cook. And one of the things I've been able to do is if you want to marinate something or start something, you know, at three in the afternoon that you're not really going to work on until six or seven. Yeah. You can run it. You can run in there and do that instead of, you know, leaving your stove on when you're at work, which is a little bit anxiety inducing. So, yeah, I would not do that. Yeah. 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 No, there's so many things like that. If you kind of think of it as not something that's oppressing you, you know, oh, I'm stuck in my house, I'm stuck in my yard. And you go, wait a minute, my life can be much more fluid, right? I can kind of jump between work and personal and family and kids and activities and whatever. Now, you know, it hits you. It hits you both ways, right? Because also, anybody can call you at eleven o'clock at night or on Saturday and start talking about work stuff, and you just sort of jump into it. But um, you know, you have to kind of think about it both ways and uh, try to make sure that you kind of get that even balance, right? Of taking advantage versus being taken advantage of. I mean, I even started to even. Um, learn that, hey, I'm not actually strapped to my desk every time I've got all these video calls back to back. I can actually go take my dog for a walk and do and actually do one of my calls while I'm on, you know, a two mile walk with my dog. Yep. Why not? You know, absolutely. And we've got the weather for it here, right? I mean, we probably have the best weather to be stuck at home in your yard and your neighborhood during a pandemic. Yeah, that's for sure. I've definitely uh, been taking advantage of the weather and I'm glad it doesn't snow here. So I've lived, <laughs> I'll live places where it does. And I'm glad uh, definitely been enjoying that. So, Adam, I've obviously known you for several years. Um, you were at Warner Brothers, Warner Bros Entertainment for a long, long time. And um, you're just kind of turning the corner into doing something new now. Tell me a little bit about how did you end up at WB? You know, what was that like? What was the trajectory to to get you to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, how I ended up there actually um, is a very different story from kind of everything that happened there. I mean, how I ended up there was really completely by accident, Um, you know, which is funny because it literally, if you would have asked me any time growing up through probably a few weeks before I started there to kind of give you a list of the top 10 industries or functions or things that I thought I would do with, you know, with my life, entertainment and especially production wouldn't have even made that list. Because before Warner Brothers, I did management consulting. Um, I was kind of in the supply chain um, operation space, kind of started to do some technology around supply chain optimization and consulting. And even before that, I was a, a mechanical design engineer, right, which is completely different. But I was looking to make a career change. 
I wanted to get out of consulting just because of the lifestyle back then where you were on, on an airplane all the time, right? Just always traveling, jet lagged, you know, working every hour. And also it wasn't satisfying because you were coming in, doing a bunch of analysis, giving a presentation and then walking away and never owning anything, right? And so I had I had sort of wanted to make a career change to a regular company that I could be a part of the operations and, and kind of own something and feel like I created something that would last. And I was interviewing, I had all these target companies I was going after that were kind of in that supply chain procurement optimization kind of space, a lot of startups, a lot of other established companies, but it kept taking me to jobs or job offers in Northern California and in Virginia and in Austin, Texas. And my wife kept on, I would, I would come back home and go, oh my God, there's this great job in Austin, Texas that they want to hire me. And she's like, didn't I tell you? Like, we're in LA, you got to, you're smart, find a job in LA. So, right. so I had this alternative list that I actually called my sort of random list, which wasn't, uh -huh. a, which actually wasn't a target, wasn't anything specific to my background or expertise, which is, hey, let's just talk to everybody you've ever worked with, right? And see what they're doing now and go have lunch with them and just catch up and see what they're doing and see if somehow maybe you could do what they're doing because I worked with them before at some point in my life. And I literally had coffee with someone that I used to work with in consulting who went to Warner Brothers when everybody else went to internet startups, right? And, oh. and sort of when everybody else went to internet startups, no one wanted the corporate jobs, right? Fortune 500 jobs were like, you know, they were the boring thing that you'd never make a lot of money that nobody wanted to do. But she said, I'm going to do what I want to do, actually, while everybody else is at startups. So, so that's how kind of she got him. But, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it was such a funny process because she kind of described to me what a studio was. And I was like, OK, I think I get it. You're kind of like producing content, you're distributing content. But it, that was about all I really knew. And then she introduced me to people. And because of the way this industry works, it was really just about did they like me? It was about relationships. Right. And I, sure. and, and I literally met like the head of feature physical production, the head of post-production, and I met the CIO of Warner Brothers. None of them ever asked me a question to actually challenge my background, my expertise, my knowledge of anything that they did, either of media and entertainment or of production or of even IT and technology. They just wanted to see if they liked me, you know? Uh-huh. And they did. And they kind of, you know, and it took it took a few months. I'd, I'd actually taken another job in between with Oracle. But then they came back and said, are you, you know, are you available? And I'm like, well, yeah, you're five miles you know, from my house. And I just took the offer and started having no idea what I was, what I was really jumping into. You know, I was like, I don't really understand what this what this thing production is. And I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to be doing because my role was around getting to know the operations of the business unit that you're dropped into. And through that understanding of the operations, coming up with opportunities through technology to improve that part of the business. And of course, that came from some, you know, from some uh, McKinsey study that the studio had actually paid for right. years before around how to manage their IT cost. And they even then said, they didn't even understand how to, how to even place people. They just said, well, we think we, think we probably need somebody who would maybe cover live action production and animation. So we'll just kind of drop someone in, in to straddle both. And actually, when I started, I like reported to four different people um, <laughs> at once, which was kind of a hot mess. And one advice I would give to anybody in their career is don't allow anybody to make you report to four or five different people and stay away from <laughs> dotted line reporting because then nobody owns you, right? And they all sort of sort of ignore you and don't really take you seriously because you report to a whole bunch of other people. And, it's, and, and especially in this business where loyalty is so important um, and relationships and kind of sticking to your silo and your track, reporting to that many people at first was kind of a mess. But over time, it slowly kind of cleaned up and some of the some of the some of the dotted lines went away. Some of the actual dotted line people fired me. But the other sort of dotted lines kind of stayed in place. And then I and then I like eventually ended up just reporting to the president of feature production, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then it got, you know, a little bit cleaner. Um, and I was actually within the feature production business unit as sort of the guy to come up with, you know, technology, you know, ways that technology could improve mostly the studio side of production back then. 
But then later on, you know, several, I mean, probably eight to 10 years later, it's, it started to transition into the actual production projects as technology started to kind of pick up there. Um, and that side kept on growing and the studio side kind of remained constant, right? Because the studio doesn't really get bigger and hardly changes their operations. But right. productions just like got crazy, right? There were more of them. They got more complex. And, you know, the amount of technology that was in productions just kept growing and growing and penetrating and penetrating into more and more corners. And if you think about it, like, um, you know, when I started, I can remember having conversations with people and I would ask some of the some of the production executives, like, what about the productions? Like, can I can I do stuff there? And they would say, listen, we're making movies the same way we did 70 or 80 years ago. I was going to say they were probably still shooting everything on 35 millimeter film, right? When you started. Yeah. And then yeah. now, I mean, I don't know what, what percentage it is, but it can't be more than 25%. I mean, right? literally I mean, the right. only thing that was digital when I started was basically the production accounting systems and email, right? You know? And, and, yeah. and, I, and I actually remember going around and, and like interviewing all the executives in the feature production business unit to get to know them and to ask them about sort of opportunities and to, you know, for technology to kind of improve what they were doing and kind of try to kind of walk them through ideas. And they all said to me, there's nothing here. You know, they're like, you know, yeah. this is, this is an apprentice kind of world. And everybody who works in production kind of started from the dirt, right. And moved their way up. No one even came in at a mid level and you only know how to do it from having done it. Um, you know, on set, um, you know, in whatever function that you kind of learn. And, and they said, technology is not going to change this. Like it has everything else in every other, you know, industry. And that nothing from the outside is ever going to make this better or understand it more than really those of us that have kind of learned it from the ground up as an apprentice. And it's so arcane and so nuanced that technology can never penetrate it and will never change it. And that was the attitude. And I kind of shifted at that point away from physical production and initially started working just on my own. I'm like, okay, if they don't want it, I'll go find someone else who wants my help. And I started actually working with the creative execs. I started working, you know, with um, casting. I started working with like business affairs and some of the more some of the more business side and the kind of creative things around physical production. And they wanted my help. And, right. and started actually kind of building with them and developing a lot of systems, you know, that helped out, for example, the story department. And I was involved in kind of implementing the first uh, SaaS solution actually in the entire studio, which ended up being something that we used in casting, you know, for like audition videos. Uh -huh. And in fact, I can even remember that even like no, there was no process for getting that SaaS app even approved by the studio because, you know, no one knew how to even address it. And I created like a committee of like 15 people around the studio, like legal and content protection and all these different, you know, groups. And I, and I sort of kept on getting them into meetings to talk about what we were going to do with the casting system. And nobody wanted to sort of approve it or define a criteria. And, mm -hmm. and then we, and then when we finally figured out where it was hosted, um, the people who I guess eventually sort of became InfoSec, but really weren't that then, they actually drove over to the data center where it was hosted and tried to physically break into it. Like, like they tried to like see if they could climb the fence or if there was some way to physically get in there to those servers. And that, that was all they even knew to care about. There was no concept of a pen test or anything else. And we literally had a meeting where I finally said, guys, we have analyzed this like crazy. You know, we've tried to hack it. We've tried to break into it. We've thought about the problem of it not being hosted here. We've kind of answered all those questions. And um, and I still couldn't get the group to kind of approve it. But nobody had any objections. And I finally in this meeting said, listen, if nobody if nobody today says no, by the end of this meeting, I'm going to implement this thing next week. And everybody sat there looking around the room, waiting for someone else to say no, and no one did. And then we just right. run with it. And that's how we sort of got that first, uh, you know, that, that first sort of SaaS application out there and kind of broke the mold of having something that wasn't hosted within our own walls, you know? Yeah, you had, 
I mean, in terms of when you joined, it was, it was, if you think about like acquisition as being the most arcane part, right? Like just the oldest, it'd been the same way since whatever the 1920s. And now you look at where that is 20 years later, it's like pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, it's like totally transformed. It is. And, you know, you know, it's funny because you don't see it while you're sort of riding through it. Right. But when you stop and look back, you're like, wow, I actually I actually was there just almost the exact right time period to have kind of rode through the change from nothing or the exact same way it was 80 years ago to now. Mm -hmm. There's literally so much technology in production and so many, I mean, anything you can think of, you, you literally think about, um, hey, how do I capture, you know, metadata coming off a camera? And there's like five SaaS applications that just allow you to enter the metadata, the lens settings, you know, the aperture, whatever of a, of a camera and anything you can think of now in production. There are multiple technologies that do it. And it's at the point today where, you would be crazy to create anything custom yourself as kind of a studio or a production, right? Because the market just has, you know, in, you know, just numerous, numerous choices for everything. And now the problem more is sort of application or technology exhaustion, right? Because now the problem is, you know, you're sitting there on every feature in TV production and there's so many apps and so much technology that the filmmakers, especially the ones like the director and DP, the ones that are at a high level that have to cross all the apps, you know, they just get kind of exhausted about having to jump back and forth and log into so many different systems. And they go, oh, you know, I'm looking for concept art. Okay, where is that? Okay, that's in box. Oh, but I'm looking for dailies. That's in pics. I'm looking for, you know... It's why now on most of these productions, there's a full-time role for a digital asset manager. And I even know now even HBO and some of their productions will have two or three digital asset managers because you got to have one person who freaking knows where all these assets, all these digital assets are because they're in so many different apps, so many servers, so many cloud containers, and they're in different places throughout the whole production lifecycle that someone has to actually keep track of, of where everything is at any moment in time and make sure that it's flowing right, that it's permissioned right, and make sure that from a workflow perspective, it's all sort of coming together and that everyone's looking at the right version and the latest version of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, the fragmentation from all those tech silos um, is really a challenge. I mean, to me, I think one of the things that kind of does need to be be solved in the next probably year or two or three is now that kind of every function and every problem has kind of been solved. How do you actually clean it up and have it come together and behave like it's one ERP sort of type of app? And I think the answer to that is probably not for someone to create an SAP-like application that would do everything on a production but it's probably having some type of common, you know, media metadata backbone or app that sort of acts that okay. way. All these different kind of best of breed, one trick pony or three trick pony apps all through APIs kind of plug into and are all able to share their media and metadata through some common structure, you know? So like applying standards like you would in broadcast or software development or whatever, having some standards for ways that the media is shared. Having standards, you may not really have to even force those standards in the way that it changes how users operate. You know, there are ways today through a combination of like artificial intelligence or even implying sort of metadata by looking at folder names, folder structures, looking at the type of media you know, to kind of derive metadata or sometimes to even present it back to people in some of the different apps, but to make it so that you're not forcing production people to have to be librarians, you know, and kind of classic because production people will not use apps if they slow them down. And if, yeah, and if yeah. anything you use during production starts to look like an archival tool, um, the yeah. filmmakers will just, so what I've seen that's been very successful is almost like, Hey, if the art department really likes to work in box because you just right click, you name a folder, you throw a piece of artwork in it and move on, you you just let them work in box, right? And if visual effects likes to work in shotgun, you just let them work in shotgun. Maybe they want to work in FileMaker. But you find a way that you can then have something that sits behind all of that, that does sort of real-time interface and pull in all of that data 
into some common structure that people that need to look across it all can kind of look at it and see it kind of normalized and see that this visual effects shot was tied to this asset which was inspired by this piece of concept art or storyboard, which came from this line in the script. And so that you can kind Mm -hmm. of connect that entire arc, but you can do it in ways that are more organic to the filmmakers. Because the one thing, I mean, the one thing that I have, you know, learned over all these years is that the hardest problem in all of sort of the technology, not only in a production, but across the entire studio, all the downstream things is finding something that you can trick, and I'm going to say trick because we're not trying to trick them, but find something that you can trick filmmakers into using and entering the metadata and classification and things that you need for a whole lot of other downstream uses. And the way you do that is not to actually tell them that they're doing it or tell them that the studio wants it, but it's to give them an app that is so easy to use and so creative friendly and so conducive and efficient for the way they operate that they just want to use it, they want to adopt it, they use it for everything. And then as a byproduct of it, you actually get all of the media and metadata in there and you get the people that know it the best, the filmmakers, you know, the creative people creating the content to tag it for you. You have production feeding the entire sort of downstream set of set of processes in the production but across the the entire studio and where we where we always used to fail is getting to the end of a production and then trying to have somebody who probably didn't work on the production or even trying to have the crew during the three weeks that they were wrapping you know suddenly tag everything to get it archived yeah that crew you know in those two or three weeks that they're wrapping like to them, that was like the time that they were allowed to chill after, you know, working like crazy throughout right. the production. And they were looking through for their next job. They were updating their resume. They were working shorter hours. They were they really were not interested in doing that. And then they would just leave and you'd never have anything really. Pro- and then you and then you'd bring in someone two or three months later who didn't know the movie. And then you'd be trying to get them to tag everything for the archive and everything downstream. So, you know, the trick really is kind of creating or, you know, deploying things that really, really are conducive and friendly and uh, bespoke to those creatives. And that's why I always believe that even if you have to use shotgun for visual effects and then you've got to jump over and, you know, use FileMaker somewhere else and you have to use picks for your dailies. But yet you could put the artwork in picks, but the artists don't want to use picks. You just let them use, you let everybody use whatever is their favorite tool. And it may even vary from one production to another. And you don't fight it and you don't try to force everybody to share one app, even though that feels like it would be more efficient. Because in the end, if you have the perfect integrated application, but you only have 20% adoption of it, um, yeah, then it's, it's not going to be anything. And, this, and the same thing goes with like security, right? Because, um, you know, if you have the most secure application in the world, you know, I mean, if you have something that's 98% secure, but in getting it that secure, you've made it kludgy and you've made it, you know, not seamless and not easy to use. And so as a result, you get 10% adoption. I mean, you know, I would, I would always prefer to take the app that's 70% secure, but I can get 98% adoption on, right? Because to me, the equation of realized security is really how secure is it times what percentage adoption do you have? Sure. Because if people aren't using it at all, then yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I was always fighting that battle with with sort of our content protection and more our infosec people and a lot of folks over the years. And I could never articulate why I was fighting it the way I was. And I finally kind of realized more recently that really I just intuitively, I know, like I know the artists love box, right? And, and, and so if I just, you know, if I can just give them box, even though it's not perfect and it doesn't tag things, it doesn't do a lot of things I want, I'm going to get such good adoption between costume and art and construction and all the departments that that in itself is going to make it secure because what was happening when we would give them more secure tools is people would work around them, right? They would just email, they'd share some other way and we'd have the perfect tool, but nobody used it. (laughs) Yeah, it's security. I mean, you know, I've done over 
my career, I've been responsible for a lot of performance upgrades, right? And it's security, performance, and flexibility are like the three knobs. So something that's super secure, sometimes the performance isn't there. Or to your point, the flexibility is there. Nobody wants to use it. Um, so that's always like a delicate balance, you know, because the other thing you don't want is something that can do everything, but is super slow. So to your point, if you've got a bunch of different individual tools, now you just have to go out and uh, write the software that's going to tie everything together. Yeah, yeah. So let's get started. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and I think that, and I think that actually one of the um, sort of challenges or or um, initiatives this year, and, and and it's actually one of three or four things that I've been kind of thinking about and focusing on kind of in my consulting, filling in the white spaces, right, between all the apps um, with automation, with sort of connectors, uh, you know, in sort of a DevOps way, right, where some of it might be kind of some reusable components and connectors and APIs, and some of it might be some some custom code and custom pipeline engineering that you create for one specific production, right? Because of its kind of unique workflows and things that they're trying to um, do. But I think kind of figuring out how to not, not not only fill in the white spaces, but to automate it, to use some AI to kind of imply things, you know, so that you really do it in a way you're not at all changing the user experience of the creatives, right? Let the creatives have the constants that sort of make them happy and make them efficient. Last year during COVID, when we were actually having everybody work at home and we started doing a bunch of editing in the cloud or remote editing, you know, into a AI facility, like we tried initially to get everybody to edit on the virtual desktops, right? Um, where they, you know, where they were, you know, they were editing in the Avid Azure cloud or they were editing with uh, Leo Stream and Teradici off of remote desktops. I mean, off of remote um, Avid workstations and storage, you know, back on the lot or in the production office. And, you know, it would work for the assistant editors. It would work for the PAs. It would work for some editors. But you'd get to that lead editor who was the most creative person on the whole editorial team, right? And they they just would – they would try because they wanted to get back to work during COVID. And they were very open to it. But when they were kind of trying to do kind of that final pass and really trying to make sure that the timing was right and the playback was right, the fact that it was a 90% solution and not 100%, you know, wasn't quite good enough for that role. And the fact that they didn't get to take advantage of everything they had on their BYOD machine, on their own personal machine, you know. And so we started to say, you know, let's, let, let's not fight them. Let's actually step back and go, you know, we'll let that one lead editor actually have their entire system at home. We'll let them have an entire copy of the movie at home you know, on a drive in their house, which used to scare the hell out of us, right, at, at the studio. Right, right. And then what we'll, what we'll do is, you know, we'll sort of work around it, right? We'll kind of give them a better firewall that's more secure, that only allows the ports to be open that they sort of need to kind of sync, you know, some of that data. And maybe we'll even have them pull their hard drive out at night, you know, so that it can't be accessed. And, you know, but we'll do things that are unobtrusive to them. And then... And then we will use a product like a storage DNA or Resilio or something, and we'll sync that lead editor's editorial media with the cloud, with the sort of master set of data. And we'd have the other seven editors actually editing in the cloud directly off of that. And we're just going to sync him in his home because that's what we really need to get him in that kind of role as the lead editor to kind of have the creative, um, you know, kind of efficiency that he needs. In so many places, I think, you know, we really kind of learned that. I mean, I mean, I learned it over all my years, but during COVID, that became even a lot more apparent because we were forced to kind of suddenly take what probably wouldn't have happened for three to five years. And literally <laughs> everything we did didn't work, right? <laughs> every single function on every production was blocked. Nothing could work the way it did before. And so we literally had to had to try five to ten different ways to solve that. New technologies, things we created, things that weren't even meant for that function, things we had to piece together. And the idea was just get it to work, right? Just get it to work because people are stopped. But once we did, um, 
you know, we soon realized that that wasn't going to be at a hold and people were kind of forgiving because they wanted to get back to work, but it wasn't going to last. And people were already starting to, because it, 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 it was like funny in the first couple of months, literally people would do anything. You could, you could tell someone they had to hang upside down with their eyes closed and edit and they would do it because they were like, I haven't been able to, you know, edit for two or three months. But eventually once you got it to work for them, they would like complain that, wait a minute, you know, the playback's freezing and it's skipping. And, you know, I have two channel sound and not five channel sound. And, you know, so then that's when we kind of had to say, you know, let's stop being theoretical here and stop being so religious and philosophical. And let's let it, you know, let's kind of move towards a little bit more of a hybrid approach. And I think that's also, that also kind of leads me into kind of, you know, the second theme or one of the things that I'm really working on a lot this year and thinking about, which is sort of, how do we now take all the things we learned last year, all the things we did, and how do we prepare for as COVID starts to become less of a threat and eventually hopefully go away and not to go back to where we were, right? And so I think the way to do that is to kind of create these hybrid, um, these hybrid solutions, right, where you have some things, some things that are in the public cloud and Maybe they're in something like a simple cloud where they are automated, where you can really quickly spin them up in the public cloud um, and use them. And they kind of fit the model because there's no degradation in performance. If they're in either that automated public cloud or a simple cloud or they're in AWS or Azure. And there are things because of some of the partnerships that were created that actually maybe um for example, like Avid, Avid really works best in Azure because of that partnership, right, that happened between Microsoft. And so maybe that ends up there. And there's things that AWS had partnerships with that kind of are best of breed and only work really well in that cloud. And then there are mm -hmm. things that, you know, like Simple Cloud, who I'm working with a lot, um, just because of their automation, just allow you to very quickly, without a lot of engineering time, get a whole lot of stuff built within minutes and have the support super simple and automated. But then what you do is you say, only do the things where you really can say that the performance and the creative experience is 100% as good as on-premise or very, very close, right? right. And then you say... Let's not make people compromise, right? Then we're going to take everything that isn't literally today almost perfect in the cloud, and we're going to do it in a private cloud, right? Because they need to work on a Mac machine, and you can't, you know, you can't still really virtualize Macs. I know Apple's made announcements, but it still isn't the same, you know. You still really can't virtualize everything within the tech stack and the public cloud. So. You would do things maybe in the private cloud that involve an Apple workstation, or you would do something where you needed a gaming machine with high clock speed and all the things that a gaming machine has. And so you just go set that up in a private cloud and you set up maybe some kind of customized, super high speed sort of custom kit build storage in a private cloud, right? And then you say, well, and then there's other things that actually still need to be on premise, you know, for example, um, when I'm when I am on set on a production and I'm doing a whole lot of visual effects scans, right? I'm doing cyber scans, lighter scans. I've got witness camera footage that's all being generated really quickly, and I got to get that off of the cameras and off of the cards um, really quickly because I'm generating media so fast, right? It still makes sense to have local high speed storage because that you you just can't get that media to the cloud fast enough, right? So you're still going to have that in that situation, and you're still going to have servers, maybe maybe with less storage because you only need to capture one day's worth of stuff that you're creating on set, and maybe you're putting some camera raw on there, and you're creating because you still need fast servers and fast storage at the point that you're creating a lot of media very quickly, whether it is visual effects, virtual production, or even camera media. And then you do that, but maybe you have it synced to the cloud so that by the next day, it's all it's all up there, right? And then there are some things where even um, they will still stay on someone's workstation, like the editors, you know, like the example that I gave you with the editor who needs to work on that full BYOD type of setup at their home or even on premise. And you sort of let that happen. 
And then there are tools you can use like a Lucid link and there's tools like that that actually are starting to let you basically um, have a on-premise workstation mount the cloud as if it was local storage and actually cache small little packets of media just the piece just the just the packet of the media that you're editing or changing just just those little pieces that you're actually changing can be cached locally so that you actually get rid of the latency problem right you get rid of the last mile problem that we all struggled with last year sure. because then the application and the small chunk of media you happen to 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 be manipulating are right next to each other on the local machine but it all is still tied back in with the cloud storage so that you get the advantage of really the fast movement, the sharing, the being able to have super fast IO in the cloud between everybody else, between the post house, the visual effects vendors, all the other functions in the production that you can move stuff from camera raw to editorial to VFX pulls to VFX vendor, you know, because once everything's in the cloud, the IO between all the different players on the production and all the different vendors and all the different supply chain people is super fast. So you kind of want the media there, but you want maybe in some of those situations, you want the creative person to feel like and operate like the media is at home and nothing's changed for them. And they're not working on a cloud VM. They're actually working on their favorite little BYOD workstation. You know, so what I'm what I'm kind of working on now is kind of putting together those workflows and those architectures literally end to end that start from concept art. And go all the way through, you know, um, some of the virtual artist stuff, some of the previous stuff, even LED walls, um, editorial, visual effects, the entire sort of production workflow, but let you sort of have have that hybrid kind of structure so that you kind of get the best, you, you kind of get the best of everything, but you get to kind of have a beachhead, right, in the cloud on every production of the things that are optimal for there. And slowly over time, as we keep on through technology innovation, getting more of the workloads so that they operate perfect with perfect performance in the cloud, that small beachhead, let's say 20% of your production workflow is, you know, is in the public cloud. Next, you know, in six months, it's 25%, it's 30%, it's 35%. Hopefully, eventually it's 100%. But by having every production kind of have that beachhead there, you get everybody used to having that cloud component and thinking about it as part of every production. And you literally keep evolving it over time. And, and on some productions, you may actually be able to get to 80 or, or even 100% because maybe they don't have some of those more challenging things. But it's a way to have it not as a zero one function, right? Not for everybody to say, God, you know, do I, you know, do I just have everything on premise because cloud isn't good enough and I keep waiting until it is, you know, and then I sort of finally get everything in the cloud? Or do I really through these hybrid um, type of architectures be able to always have something there, um, you know, to realize some of those efficiencies and just keep growing it and get everybody used to kind of having some piece of every production there and my thought is that it is the hybrid and you really think about, you think about the workflows, you think about how you connect things in ways that, that you can kind of seamlessly have things all over the place in multiple clouds and on-premise and still have it work as if it all was right in front of you, you know? Yeah, there's, I think the, the, the current, you know, market conditions and people not being able to get to the on-premise stuff accelerated an inevitable outcome. So I think it was a little painful in the short term, but I think long-term, we probably found out a lot of things that it would have taken three, four, five more years to find out. We kind of crammed that into the current. And so now to your point, because I don't want to do any cloud at all, or I want to do cloud all the time. Everyone, I think we've kind of discovered that those are not, those are not viable, you know, pass forward. So now I think it, I don't know. I think it had a way of forcing people to hybrid and really think about that. The other thing I'm excited about is it seems like, you know, we at DZ, we work with a lot of big legacy OEMs, you know, large companies, HP, Cisco, you know, Dell, et cetera. And it has forced them at least within this vertical to, to innovate a little bit um, at a rate that they probably 
normally would. Oh, yeah, no, it's um, because there was yeah, no, no need I to. mean, it's forced so. everybody. I mean, the rate of innovation last year during COVID was crazy, right? I mean, literally, Pretty literally, amazing. I mean, I can, I can, I can remember that if, you know, you know, if, if we were sitting there trying to architect the workflow on a tentpole movie and we were doing it in June, right? And we had even the same filmmakers in the same production. If you actually had the same conversation in July, you would have a different answer. You would have a different answer because the vendors kept leapfrogging each other. You know, you would be like, okay, you know, in June, actually, let's say like QTake would have been maybe the best solution for like video assess. But all of a sudden, Clearview Flex or Clearview Pivot released something in July that suddenly made them better at something that you needed. And you went like, no, now the answer is that. Or wait a minute, but if we wait another four weeks, actually Streambox Chrome was about to come out with something and that actually makes it even better or gives you a different set of options. And it was constantly like, people kept on asking me like, what is what is the best architecture for XYZ that we're trying to do? And I have to say, when are you doing it? Like, is this production now? Or is it a month from now or two mm-hmm. months from now? Because I knew things that were coming that were going to change that answer. And we kept on having to stop every time we get into a new workflow meeting or a new production and go, wait a minute, Evercast just did something. Actually, that would be the answer here. Or, you know, we were even doing stuff with like Colorfront, you know, and we're like, oh, we can actually use Colorfront now to play back EXRs out of the cloud when literally a couple of weeks before there was no way to play back EXRs out of the cloud, right? You had to bring it down on premise. And so you literally had to, in your head, not only have every solution out there, but you had to be keeping track of who was evolving and leapfrogging where, you know, and it was hard. I mean, I would get to Fridays and my head was, my head was so sore and tired from having to keep all those balls in my head of all the tech yeah. on our production, who was where and what, you know? Um, so I, I almost kind of hope some of it slows down and gets a little bit back to normal, but um, but what it did do is really, I mean, not, not only did it open people up to all the cloud stuff, but it let people see um, all the options and all the pivoting and all the kind of agility that they could have you know, kind of after, you know, the COVID and work from home thing is over from that, right? Like the fact that I may have most of my editors in LA, but if there's one really good editor in Idaho, I can now throw them onto a production. Or, you know, if I start shooting something, um, you know, in London, and let's say I had the editors on set, but some of them kind of needed to go back to LA because of either family reasons, personal reasons, or even they had a better facility and um, environment there than on set. I could literally send a couple of editors back to LA, let them work out of home or some you know facility, leave one on set. And then I could say, I'm going to actually rotate editors from LA to on set in London, right? I'm going to actually have one editor on set, let's say for one episode for, for um, a couple of weeks, I'm going to fly him back to LA and I'm going to take another editor and fly him in for the next episode and then fly a different one in for the third episode and then throw them back into the pool in LA that are working out of home or their facility or one guy who literally, you know, his in-laws are really sick and they live in Ohio. And this actually came up on one of our productions and we were going to actually lose them off the movie. And we said, wait a minute, we can actually have you edit in Ohio and still be with your in-laws. And we kept that really good editor on that movie that we would have lost. Right. Some of those, some of those possibilities to kind of pivot or even, or even like you start doing part of a production in Atlanta or doing visual effects or doing a location. And then you realize, wait a minute, we could actually do some of that piece on an LED wall back in LA and you could actually stop and not finish it there and run back to LA and do part of the shoot there. Um, You know, just that ability to kind of pivot and not be locked into like once you decide to do post in New York or LA, you're sort of doing it there the entire time. Now you're really able to kind of not only pivot on a dime, 
but have different people in different places. I mean, we even had a production where we had most of the visual effects team sitting in LA, even though the production, you know, was in London, right? Everybody but the couple of people doing on-set capture. And you would never not have the visual effects people on set, but we were able to actually do that. So it just opens up so many more possibilities, so much more agility. Um, Things that would not only save you cost, but things that actually might allow you to make a better movie, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the one thing you can't replace with technology is great creative resources. So if you can get access to them where you normally, you know, otherwise would not, that's uh, what technology is supposed to be doing. So Adam, uh, I got the two minute warning. Um, I want you to tell us about, tell us about dark fiber production technology. You're the CEO. Give us a quick plug. So dark fiber production technology is is a consulting business, right, that I have started up independently, where I'm really taking kind of my own experience, right, from kind of 19 years, um, you know, with that bird's eye view across all of the functions on all these live action and animated productions. And that time in which I pretty much developed technologies or implemented tech in every single function on a production and did the same thing in every single function on the studio side of production, I'm really kind of leveraging that kind of bird's eye view of sort of a 5,000 foot level across everything in a production and how it sort of connects from a workflow, from an architecture perspective to consult technology companies, um, as well as even productions and studios on kind of, um, uh, well, from a, you know, when I'm actually consulting the tech companies, it's really on their product strategy, right? It's on... It's on how they can um, understand blind spots, understand things that are kind of around them with other tech vendors, other, other things that they can connect to in the workflow to offer kind of more complete end-to-end workflow solutions. So in some cases, the tech vendors may create more functionality out of some of this, but in many cases, they may pick up some partners and that together with their partners they can offer kind of the more complete solutions. And one big example is those hybrid kind of cloud on-premise workflows, right? That like, for example, I'm working with maybe a vendor like Simple Cloud that only does stuff in the cloud, but then I'm like working with someone else that does private cloud stuff. And I'm working with someone else that does on-premise storage. And I'm able to kind of take these vendors, understand what they do and kind of get them to partner with each other with me creating the vision of kind of that complete end-to-end solution that they would have when they work together, or sometimes they would work separately. And so a lot of a lot of my consulting is around kind of connecting point technology kind of solutions that people understand their silos into kind of creating more, more integrated kind of end-to-end things that make these entire workflows work. And these workflows are getting so complex. Um, that you know that people need that, right? I mean, they need they need things that solve the complete problem, and 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 in some cases, system integrators, right? Like you guys at like DZ or other system integrators may start to offer and think about kind of presenting also managed managed solutions that take a bunch of tech and put it together, and also offer it as sort of a complete you know one throat to choke type of service, you know. Um, but it also could be vendors kind of operating together. And those are the things I'm thinking about as I'm consulting the service providers in the industry like you guys and the tech vendors on kind of how to create some of that virtually or how to create it kind of, you know, for real, you know, because um, thinking about things in terms of an entire workflow um, is so important as it gets complex and the efficiencies are, are are just really you know valuable. Yeah, it's kind of an exciting. It's an exciting time. You got you. I gotta say, for the last twenty years, including right now, you seem to have had some excellent timing. So keep yeah. that up for sure. Um, hey, what? Uh, how can people find out more about you? What's the best way for people to contact you that want to learn more? You know, about what they you're can doing? just look me up on LinkedIn, or um, you know, I mean, okay. you know, they can send they they can send me an email at adam at darkfibertech.com. 
Just made it really simple. Sounds good. I decided that in my company, we're going to go by first name only. <laughs> What's funny is actually when I started awesome. to create that, that, that email, I fell back in my studio mode and I went adam.sloan at darkfibertech. And I went, wait a minute. No, I could just be Adam, you know, at darkfibertech.com. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to live that way if you don't want to. Yeah, you can go with first name. I uh, I held out and I was Tom G at DZSolutions.com forever before I finally became Thomas Dot Gilson. But I, I held on I held on to the short email uh, address as long yeah, as Yeah, and now you're like Tom the Cat, right? Tell yeah. me, um, that's right. Now I'm Elgato. <laughs> that's correct. Um, and uh, what are you doing this weekend? I will probably uh, I will probably go with my son and do some. Um, bike riding in the hills near our house, which I, you know, I've lived in this area for 20 years and didn't even realize that within a mile of my house are all of these hills that we can ride our bikes up and down all of these trails. Um, and also hiking it out, you know, it is sort of one of the, one of the advantages of COVID is that I've discovered all these things that are in my local neighborhood because I was forced to stay local, you know? So now, yeah. like me and my son have found all these cool places, literally within a half mile or mile of our house, where there's these crazy bike rides up and down, you know, hills and into ditches, and uh, uh, you know, you, you know. So yeah, we'll do some of that, you know, do some hiking, probably just relax in my backyard, um, you know, uh, chill and. I don't know. Maybe maybe think about some of my. Well, no, no, I'm not going to think about it, any of my work stuff. I'm just going to actually relax and enjoy myself. Yeah, try to relax exactly. And uh, I I hear you on the exploring. I've found more stuff in this neighborhood in the last twelve months than in the you know ten oh, years. I didn't even realize that. all the cool places there are to walk. Like I've started, I started to take four or five yeah. mile walks through parts of my neighborhood I didn't know existed. I've like met all my neighbors that I've lived next to for 20 years and yeah. didn't know who yeah. anybody was. And now we all know each other. Yeah. We know each other's dogs, you know? Um, I mean, I yeah. feel like I've gone back to what life was probably like in the 1950s, right? When everybody actually yes. probably did know their neighbors and had block parties and, and actually, you know, um, not only for social reasons, but even probably network for business with people that live near them. Right. Um, so I hope some of yeah. that holds, right? Because it is pretty cool. It took me a while to get my head into that mindset to actually want to, like yeah. I had never, I had never walked my dog ever until COVID. And now I walk my dog every day yeah. and I, and I do it because it's fun. And I, and I do it because I actually yeah. enjoy it, not only in terms of getting outdoors, but I look forward to who else I'm going to meet from my neighborhood, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I stop and talk to other dog yeah. owners, et cetera. Yeah. Um, Adam, thank you very much for doing this. I know you're a busy guy and I really appreciate it. Um, so that's Adam Sloan, S-L-O-H-N, right? Or Adam at darkfibertech.com if you want to find out more. Thanks to everybody for joining us for Fresh Tech Fridays. And until next time, this is Tom G and Adam Sloan signing off. See you, Tom. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks again for joining this week's episode of Fresh Tech Fridays. I'm your host, Tom Gilsonen. I want to thank Jason Johnson for composing our theme music, RSPE, and especially Russ for help with some engineering and equipment, Dell Technologies for helping sponsor some episodes of the podcast, Kayla Robeson, DZ Solutions Marketing Director for helping make this all possible, and last but not least, our fearless audio engineer, Jeff Rockland, engineering from afar. If you want to learn more about Jeff and his projects, I encourage you to check out his Relief Valve podcast that you can find wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again, and see you next time.